has all the knowledge you want. Malik books has all the knowledge you need. Malik books. Yeah, they have all the books that the whole wide world wanna read. Malik books. Woo-wee! Welcome to Malik Bookshop, bringing a world together with books, culture, and community. This going to be a fiery 60th episode. We had a wonderful week. We hosted several events last week at Malik Books in the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Mall. We hosted first Black Hollywood. I think I touched on the last episode about black history, about these events. But the one black bet on black. That's right. Bet on black. That was an explosive event. And that's my episode for the 60th. Each you know, when you're 50, the 60, the 70, and when I hit 100, I got to do a milestone episode. But this is the 60th episode, and it was lit at the event. So that's going to be my 60th episode because it's called Bet on Black. The good news about being black in America today. That was the subject matter because that's the title of the book by Ebony K. Williams. And that is the event that I hosted this last Wednesday. On a Wednesday night, people came out. It was a beautiful discussion and book signing. We had a moderator by the name of Devin Bakewell, who's an author who's uh, that writes novels and also a managing editor of the Los Angeles Sentinel and Los Angeles West Times. Watch time. So, hey. We put on and one when I do events like this and if and, 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 and the people come out, I really feel high, I feel good, I feel on top of the world because you know, Malik's bookshelf, Malik's books, and everything that we do is all about community. And my goal is always to bring people together, even in difficult times on diff in, in different subject matters. This event was a hit. Bet on black. The good news about being black. In America, my episode is going to be called just the short version, Better on Black. You know, I, and like I said, I was born black, I'm going to die black, and I'm unapologetically black. And events like this is why Malik books exist. You know, it's, it's certain things in this, in this world that you got to bet on, and that's yourself. And that's when I read the book and when I hosted the event, bet on yourself. If you're a black person, you got to bet on yourself. You got to stop, man, looking in other directions. You know, it's okay to collaborate with others. It's okay to work with others. But when it comes down to it, it's, you gotta, it got to be from within. And whatever you are, whoever you are, you got to bet on yourself. You understand? And when, and whatever group you part of, you got to bet on that group. You know, I'm a black man. And what, what I'm saying is we as black people got to stick together and do for self. It's the differences that make us great. So, hey, we got to come together as black people, build together, love each other, do for self. We got to do all of that. So this episode number 60th, Bet on Black with guest Ebony K. Williams. Now, I was born black, I'm gonna die black, but I'm unapologetically black. And that's why I believe folks exist. I exist because we give voice to the voices. We've been silent for too long, and we gotta step up into our voice. 
We are America. We make this country great. And bookstores like Malik Books tell the story because we have a wealth of books that talk about so many subjects from history into now. And today we're going to talk about Bet on Black. I'm going to set the tone for this event. Bet on Black. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. We're excited today. This is the kind of event I love to do because this is social, it's cultural, it's education, and then most importantly, it brings a generation of change. So, hey, thank you for coming out on a Wednesday night. My name is Malik Muhammad. I'm the founder and co-owner of Malik Books. We've been serving the community since 1990. Give it up. We have two locations. We have one right here. If you turn around, Malik Books is right there. I've been in this mall since 1994 and out of this mall. And we opened up our second location at the Westville Cove City Mall, AKA Fox Hills Mall. And we open it during the pandemic. So when you visit Malik Books, it's the total African-American experience of pride, of joy, where we give voice to the voiceless. So I invite you to follow us on our social media and post today, as well as uh, our Instagram, which is Malik Books, and also, I want to give a round of applause for the Pan-African Film Festival right. for making this possible. Yeah, they've been around since, what, 31 years ago when they started. You see? And we, thought we turned it up Thursday night jazz at Malik Books in Westfield Mall. So come on through, 6 to 9. All right? We have an incredible uh, writer uh, and a graphic novelist, uh, Rodney Barnes, coming up February 23rd, 7 p.m. He got a graphic novel called Black A Love. So that's at the Westfield Mall. Let me introduce you to the moderator for this evening. He's uh, managing editor of the Los Angeles Sentinel, as well as the Los Angeles Watch Times. And she's graduated from Howard University. And hello, HBCU, right? I thought was a good fit to moderate Ebony Williams today. Then Devin Bakewell. Now she's a novelist. She got some books out too. Greater Love and Greater Life. They both out. And you know Malik Books got them. You know we did a signing with Devin. So hey, support the, support her. She's a young author, a young journalist, and she likes to work with children and uh, women. And so she got some awards. Uh, and did doing that, and so she's gonna moderate today. So I want y'all to give a round of applause for Devin Bakewell. Thank you. Well, first, let me tell you, I love this book. 
I loved it. And I, you know, I'm a fiction author and I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I'm going to be honest with you. So I was a little nervous, but I read this book in a day. I absorbed it. I loved it. And so I just want to first say congratulations. I'm proud that you're getting this message out and I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Devin. And I, in the interest of time, and I really want to first and foremost uh, thank Brother Malik uh, and everybody at Malik Books. It's, I love that it. it's a family event. Uh, I met his beautiful wife and two of his lovely children. Uh, my publishers, God bless their, their hearts, uh, they originally scheduled this event to be at a, another bookstore in Los Angeles. Uh, but it wasn't black owned, so it wasn't the right place for this event. Um, so I reached out to Brother Malik and he graciously offered this opportunity, so thank you. I also want to thank uh, the Pan-African Film Festival Thank you very, very much for supporting this book. And it's, it's a real honor to celebrate this moment with all of you. And I want to thank y'all for coming out on a Wednesday night, because not for nothing, we could all be home right now watching Married at First Sight. <laughs> and that's exactly where I would be but for this event. Um, so I want to thank y'all. Y'all could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and I appreciate that. Um, so with that, this is what we're going to do. Devin, you're going to ask, I'm going to let you ask five questions. Uh, then I'm going to open it up to Q&A. We're gonna do. You know I'm gonna produce it next time. You know I'm gonna produce it. <laughs> then I'm gonna. Then I'm gonna let you all ask six. That's a nice round number. And then we're gonna sign some books. We're gonna take some photos. And then I'm going to eat. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, we can get started. First, can you tell the audience why you decided to write this book? Absolutely. So, what I know for sure is through my lived experience. And my academic experience, as I told the governor of Florida, I do have a degree actually in black studies, amen. amen. Is that the single most misunderstood experience in America is that of blackness. People talk about black people a lot. Even black people talk about black people a lot. But most everybody really does not have an innate understanding of the actuality of blackness. So I start this book, chapter one, called Actuality. You have to understand the actualness of blackness. Part of that is, as Baldwin says, he had to spend most of his life throwing up everything that he was told and taught about being a black man in America and a black queer man at that in his case. This book is a tool to help regurgitate all the lies, all the filth, all the malarkey, all the mythology that we have all been culturally fed, some of us even within our own homes. I'm gonna say that part again. Some of us even within our own homes about who we are. Blackness is a treasure. Blackness is panache. Blackness is obviously beauty. <laughs> but blackness is my superpower. And I wrote this book, Devin, because I invited to be yours as well. Yes, and in the book, you discuss that you use the term black and not African-American, or over but African-American. Can you talk about why you believe that to be important? I want to be clear on this. I am not the black terminology police. I feel the way about blackness, frankly, as I do about the N-word. I choose not to use it, but I will, who am I to police other black people's usage of a term they may or may not identify with? That said, for me, African American doesn't cut it because I know the history in which it evolved. So we've been called a lot of things um, globally and, and here in this land, 
called America as, as melanated people. We've been Negro, we have been colored, we have been of color, we have been black, and we have been African-American, and I would say we are somewhere between African-American and black again today. How we evolved historically from African-American to black came about in roughly 70s, 1980s, early 90s, and I submit it was a response to a white discomfort with the potency of the full throttle usage of the term black. Because black, when it was in its heyday of, of colloquial usage, it was really a derivative of the black power movement. A black is beautiful, say it loud, I'm black in my, I am proud energy, right? Those vibes felt discomforting to some, some of us even. So African-American feels a little diluted for me. I also think it does not fully capture the broader African diaspora, which I think is very important, which is why I can shout out to Pan African Film Festival here. I define blackness very intentionally because it's very important that I address what blackness is to me. Blackness is simply the Africa in you. That's what it is. So however you choose to shape and identify your relationship with the Africa in you, therein lies your blackness. And when did you think you came to these ideas about you know using the term black over African American? A lot of this evolution for me, Devin, took place, and I'm so happy to see some of my classmates in the audience tonight. During my uh, blessed tenure at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I matriculated as an undergraduate and I studied black uh, studies. Actually, the school still to this day, my degree says African American and African diaspora studies. Um, I've pointed a black studies degree. And a lot of my evolution uh, that you will read in this book from my uh, toying with back to Africa movements of Garvey and the like, um, I talk about Perry Hall, I talk about Dr. Madison, I talk about uh, my introduction to black feminist power a la Elaine Brown, uh, shout out to the West Coast. So absolutely, so my introduction to the depth of blackness and my relationship with mine and the cultures broadly really takes a deep dive during my collegiate experience, which is why I took that shit real personal when DeSantis had the audacity to suggest that it is anything other than the most elite of academic pursuit to know from which you come from and which so much of this nation derives. I don't think I could have studied anything. I could not have studied anything at UNC that would have better prepared me for the work of my life than that black studies degree. That's awesome. And you talked. You got two more questions, Devin. Come on. All right, all right. You talked about the people that inspired you um, in college, and you mentioned a lot of different writers. You mentioned um, a lot of inspiration people. You mentioned Malcolm X, Du Bois. Who are some leaders in the black community that inspired you? You mentioned some of them, Du Bois, of course, uh, Malcolm X, and I'm blessed to um, have had his, one of his daughters, Oyasa, read this book uh, previous to its publication, and, and she, she really, to me, paid me the highest compliment when she talked about how she feels that her father, Malcolm, uh, would, have, would have put his hand in blessing on this, on this work. Um, that's the compliment of my career so far. Um, others that I'm in deep relationship with, James Baldwin. I don't exist without Brother Baldwin. 
And that's another reason I, I gotta speak on this, especially to our community. I will not allow a moment that is looking to eradicate you know, and, and act in erasure of black queer identity uh, in, in an effort to so-called advance uh, the isolation of blackness. See, I will not participate in the extraction of black queerness from blackness because as long as there have been black people, there have been black queer people, okay? And I don't wanna hear anybody open their mouth to talk about no black studies if it doesn't center Baldwin, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Bayard Rustin. How, how can you teach it? How can you even pretend to care about it if you don't include the inextricably linked experience of our black queer uh, kinfolk? So that is very important to me. Um, probably my greatest mentor of them all is Douglas, uh, Frederick Douglas, and the genius of Douglas. I open chapter two, which is entitled Optics, with a with my example of how Douglas is my greatest teacher on the power of optics. So most of you know I started my career practicing law, I started in the criminal space and uh, did some litigation work. But ultimately I took a career turn in, in broadcast journalism and actually started my journalism career right down the street at KFI AM 640. Uh, and eventually then matriculated to cable news and reality and you know the rest is history. But why? Why would such a brilliant legal mind like mine Choose to, yeah, I gotta think about these little subjects. Uh, choose to leave the courtroom for television, right? Or microphone. It is because of Douglas' teaching that the power of optics is a unique and powerful form of protest. Frederick Douglass is the single most photographed individual of the 19th century. He's not the most photographed black person, and he's not the most photographed man. He's the most photographed individual of the entire 19th century. There's more pictures of Frederick Douglass than Abraham Lincoln. Why is that? It's because Douglass understood better than most, even at that time, Devin, that it is the power of visibility. You can say and think the best shit ever. If no one sees it, if no one hears it, it is for naught. So I understood that I could have all these great teachings that have been poured into me and thoughts and intellectualisms and, 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 and chutzpah, right? But if I am not platformed and broadcast globally, I've missed an opportunity. Um, and, and Douglas also understood optics to be very specific. We saw Douglas in a very particular format. Douglas was always impeccably dressed. Douglas is the original pretty powerful, actually. Douglas always had, you know, that, that finger wave situation coiffed, okay? <laughs> Douglas, Douglas is a beautiful black man. Douglas wasn't ever smiling during his photos because wasn't shit funny, okay? And he's baiting the American consciousness of that time to say, who are you to shadow a beautiful human spirit like me? That is the power of optics, and that is the power of Douglas. Last question. No big good one. No pressure. I know. You talked about your platform and you know you have this new book where you're calling people to action. So, you know, I just want to ask, what do you want people to do after reading this book? Great, perfect, succinct. 
This is a very audacious book to write in a climate where brilliant black minds uh, and non-black minds are writing really powerful pieces about blackness in America. So I take this uh, work and this challenge very seriously. I want people to do one thing and one thing only. I want my people to stand 10 toes down in your blackness everywhere you choose to bring it. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be as black as Brother Malik. Damn, Brother Malik, you real black. Where you going? I'm right here. Oh, there you are. Now that's some black blackness. I'm with it. Um, I say that in jest. But you don't necessarily have to do it like Malik or like me, right? Or like whoever you see on television. But whatever it is for you, whatever your authentic spirit moves you to show up in, in all the spaces that you occupy, my invitation through this book, Devin, is to not shrink from it, don't accommodate white comfort, don't even accommodate the very tempting collective black approval. Yes, there will be some that look just like you and I who do not approve of your methodology, of the way in which you show up and choose to bring all of who you are to everything you do. I'm asking that in this moment today, we get to do it different because of what they've all gone through for us. And I'm simply submitting that this is a, a, a fine opportunity for us to stand 10 toes down in our blackness, however we so choose to do. No more sidekick energy, no more accommodating, no more shrinking for white gays or accommodation, okay? It's main character energy only, period. And if you can't get with it, I think what to, today is showing you is that you will actually be the one displaced. I, I think y'all all got the subtext, so I'm gonna leave it right there. But you better make space for blackness in America today, or you will find yourself displaced. There we go, y'all heard her. Okay, thank you. Um, we, Brother Lee, how do we want to do the mic situation? I do want to ask uh, six people to be able to, to share from the audience their questions. Uh, with black people owning less than half of 1% of the wealth in this country, uh, what are your take on reparations? And if you support it, what avenue do you think would be the best outcome to repair challenges that occur in this country? So I speak directly to what Justin is is leading us to here in chapter, I think it's five, it's called Leverage. And I open that chapter with the very basic reality. It's very hard to be free when you don't own anything. It's really hard to be free, y'all, when you don't own anything. So I make a very specific prescription around black ownership, whether it's black entrepreneurship, like Brother Malik here, whether it is black real estate holdings, now, one of the sad truths of America today for black folks is that we actually own less real estate, y'all, in America today than we did pre the Anti-Discrimination Housing Act of 1968. We hovered at around 42% then, we hover right around the same today. It's a tragedy. We actually can't afford it. So I'm talking in this book specifically about black home ownership. I know some of us live in uh, these elite spaces like Los Angeles, DC, LA, San Diego, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, that make it hard. We gotta start talking about what co-op situations look like. We gotta start talking about what it is to buy property somewhere you don't live because at least the asset is appreciated. 
and you have access to that equity so that you can do a small business loan or send your next generation to school or whatever you choose to invest that equity in. So I, I speak very prescriptively and specifically, Justin, around the wealth building asset portion of black liberation. We cannot be serious about being free in this country if we are not talking about ownership and asset building. I gotta get my question in. I'm hosting this thing. I mean, I'm surprised you let him go first. Wouldn't be yeah, me. Right, right, right. You've been dropping bombs all day. Now, <clears throat> historically, we've been called a lot of names. Yes, we have. Negro, so called Negro, African American, Afro American, Black. Why is Black so more important? Because I personally think that it has a different political, social, cultural meaning than it does African-American. Because in the 60s, James Brown said, I'm black and I'm proud, right? 60s, 70s, and then it moved to African-American. Now we get back to the word black. So can you speak on why this word black and the difference between you identifying as black? Because I personally think everybody can be called any other name, but not everybody can call black. I love that. Amen. Not everybody gets to be black. Not everybody gets to be black. We've been, if you if you have a, a spiritual belief system like I do, I know I was chosen to be black, and I know I was chosen to be black in 1983 to take my spiritual gifts and and, and apply them to this particular moment in American trajectory. Uh, blackness for me is about the potency, Malik. It's a it's a particularly potent. Capture, And I, again, I'll, I'll reiterate the point of its broadness of scope. I think when you start talking about African-American, you start talking about people of color, I think it starts to limit the power of who gets to be black. Um, specifically, I'll say that my experience living in New York City has really taught me and educated me on this term. When you go to New York, uh, you don't just get to be black. You've got to be a specific, uh, is you Caribbean black, you're Nigerian black, bitch, you're from Senegalese. Well, you know, it's very specific like that. And that's, I get it. But, but I, 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 I challenge my New York community to never forget. And, and, and Isabel Wilkerson speaks to this very powerfully in her book, Cast. Sometimes white proximity and aligning oneself to white proximity and approval will have those of us who are black overemphasize categorizations where we want to say, well, I'm black, but not that kind of black. And we think that we are doing that in some kind of virtue signaling to white presumptions, incorrect presumptions, by the way, of blackness. Again, start the beginning of bed on black, the good news about being black in America, and you'll learn the actuality of being black, and now you're not preoccupied with distinguishing yourself from your black kinfolk. So it's, it's black for me, it's gonna always be black for me, because I understand the power and the potency of blackness. Amen, give it up. I'm with that answer. Next. Today, I uh, appreciate you. Um, my question is about the Real Housewives of New York. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was one of the one of the one show that I never did watch, but when I saw you, I began to watch. And what I would like to know is what lesson? What was the strongest, most important lesson that you learned 
from being on that show that you've taken away with you that you can go ahead and share with us? Love it. So I speak specifically about the Real Housewives of New York or the Roni of it all in chapter three entitled Disruption. I took a lot of lessons, but the biggest one I took was, I'm gonna say it's ultimately you, watch the chips fall, play the long game. So I went on Roni, unclear as to the landscape of reality from an outsider perspective. Um, you know, I only knew it as a, as a warrior. Now I came on the show with a black college degree, with a law degree, with a career that had centered blackness and a very black name, Ebony Keanu Williams. It's got to be one of the blackest names in television. And for some reason, my castmates, even probably the executives to some level, were startled and confused when I chose to continue the work of centering blackness. Um, I think if anything, I was probably and I know that some, even my folks felt I was doing too much, it was too strong, it was too potent. I'm gonna tell you the truth, sis, the only thing I would do differently is instead of that fabulous, glamorous Harlem night dinner, I would've took them bitches to Brooklyn, gave them a slice of the beer, and told them to kiss my black ass. <laughs> That's the only thing I would've done different, kept my money, because they surely didn't appreciate the beauty of blackness. Thank you for being here, we that last part. So, um, Sora's, oh, sorry, Portia is my sorority sister in Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Um, she is also one of my dearest friends in the world, and we, uh, for over two years now, have shared and bonded over experiences of uh, ascending in professional spaces as educated black women. And what's interesting is sometimes we compare and contrast our experiences. I went to a predominantly white institution at UNC Chapel Hill, and Portia had the great privilege of attending Clark Atlanta University. And uh, I started this book tour uh, in Baltimore, and I had a lot of students, Portia, from Morgan State University show up. And they asked a similar question. I said, my advice to you is to bottle up the truth and actuality of blackness that you are receiving on this elite, college campus because what students that come out of HBCUs and I, there is some truth to the fact that you will then have to confront the reality of white gaze and white expectation differently because you are not matriculating in that at the undergraduate level but I still think there is a swag there is an innate confidence there is an innate sense of knowing one's qualification and one's earnestness when you come from a black school and or however else that is instilled in you, whether for me it was Gloria, for me it was the books, for me it was knowing of Baldwin and Phyllis Wheatley and uh, El Eldridge Cleaver and all of that stuff before I even got to college. But if, it, if not that, I think those HBCU kids, Portia, need to bottle it up. The normalization 
of Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Professor So-and-so, all looking like you. Because when you get out of that petri dish of black academic excellence, you will be hard pressed to find anything in the outside world that amplifies that. But that is who we are. That is not, black awesomeness, because I'm over black excellence. Excellence is innately black, so that it's repetitive to me. Um, but that actual awesomeness of who we are is not isolated to the academic black HBCU experience. And people would have you believe that. So I just think bottle it up, soak it up, put that battery in your back because you're going to need it when you get into these workplaces, these boardrooms, these classrooms that are not HBCUs, these hospitals, these finance institutions, these newsrooms, and they will try to tell you everything you are but that you are not. So I think just try to feed off of that as much as you can and trust that what you experienced those four years on that campus is who you are. conversation of nationalism. Yes. White nationalism, black nationalism. Yes. Um, and so when we think of white nationalism, we think of racism. But reading the book, it came up that you were you could possibly be a black nationalist. Do you consider yourself one? And if so, what's the difference? At one time, I absolutely was a black nationalist. Um, I write about this in the book as well. Uh, there's a chapter where I talk about Again, my toying with the Garvey of it all and saying, you know what? And then I'll frame it for you the way I do in the book. Let's start with some basic facts. The basic fact is there was never a plan for melanated people of African descent to be fully liberated free people on this particular stolen land. That's a fact. So even to, um, a Lincoln originally, and it was a common theory at the time that we should really just put these up uh, black people back on boats and send them back to Africa. That was a full throttle thing. Mm -hmm. Shit didn't work out. <laughs> so here in which we remain. And so I had a real tension. I, I, this is talked about y'all in the title that I called Entitled, where I talk about what ultimately becomes an arc of progression where I find myself today, which is that I think Similar to what Paul Robeson suggests, which is, yeah, we, we, we could go back to Africa. That's fine. We, like, legitimately, that's, that's an opportunity and a, and, a, and a choice. But by no means will we be ran off our land, essentially, right? He says, we have committed too much. We have put too much blood and tears and breast milk into the soil of this here land stolen from our indigenous kinfolk, that we must boldly proclaim our innate entitled right to be here, if we so choose. And we don't have to concede to being here in a secondary, subsidiary way. That's what the whole book is about. So it's not so much about black nationalism as much as it is about a seismic shift in positioning of what it is to be black in America. 
we will, I will no longer, and I want all my folks to come with me, be in second position. I will only be in first position. Right, right, right. The lady said, the book in 24 hours, I got to give her one more question, then. Okay, one more question, and then we'll wrap. I love it, thank you. Um, in your book, you did say that black people are the most misunderstood people in America. I want to know, what do you want non-black people to understand? First of all, I want, I want non-black people to know, and I know this is true because I have living witnesses in my life, belovedly, you don't even have to be black to bet on black. You don't even have to be black to bet on black. That's some good news, amen? Amen. I want them to know that we are not as tethered to their approval as they may think or have been led to believe. I want, I want them to understand that the centeredness of whiteness is not necessarily their fault as white people matriculating on this land today, right? But it is a byproduct of a global system of colonialism and white supremacy that is rooted in a notion of scarcity. It's rooted in a notion that says there's not enough fill in the blank. Food, seats at good schools, jobs, men. And if you replace it with the actuality, at least my God tells me there's plenty. My God tells me there is abundance. And if you believe in the abundance, you do not have to be tethered to the white methodology of scarcity, which is the root cause of all the annihilation, of all the colonialism, of all the bloodshed around white supremacy on all the years of all the places. So I want non-black people to not be afraid to compete. Nuck if you bum. <laughs> but no, because the, the most beautiful and successful white people I know are not tethered to their innate whiteness as their superpower. The dope white people I know happen to be white. They don't need to be white. And that's the difference. Um, so I just want us to all relish in that actuality and that's a part of the reframing that the book is rooted in. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Sora Cherise. Do you miss us here in LA? I do. I don't miss much else, but I miss y'all. That's not my question. That's no. not my question. Um, there is a reparations movement in California. I'm aware. And uh, my question is, what would be your call to action for our, the residents and the allies if you were still here in the great state of California? So it's a great question, Zora Cherise, um, she's also a fellow attorney. I cover this on my NAACP Image Award nominated podcast, Holding Court, which drops every Wednesday. And I, and I actually use y'all's governor, Gavin Newsom, as an example. Uh, perfect, he is not. But on this issue, he is a great opportunity for those of us who don't believe reparations is the right thing to do, it is the just and moral thing to do. Okay, when you talk about reparations, you're not talking, of, at least I'm not talking about, because ultimately my legal lens is the period in which I see this through, right? I'm not talking about 
being on the right side of history. I'm talking about paying your bills. I'm talking about settling your debt. I'm talking about the restoration of it all, the restitution of it all, making one whole from which you've already derived. So Gavin Newsom, what he's doing on reparations, now folks can get to me distracted in the why he's doing it. He wants to remember, who, who, name a politician that y'all know, black, white, or other, who is not setting policy with the overall ambition of their career trajectory. I don't really give a damn about that. What I do know is that Gavin Newsom in the state of California is modeling at, at the biggest level. Now you've got pockets, you've got St. Louis doing a task force, you've got Evanston, I think Illinois has done some things. Some and that's all very important too, because we know that this, to be successful y'all, nationally for black folks to get uh, rest, I'm gonna say, well it is, I'm gonna start calling it restitution <laughs> and reparations. It has to have a critical mass component. So I'll tell you what I'm doing in New York. I'm saying, yo, Eric Adams, you let you let Gavin choke you like that play? No, but seriously, right? Like you, you you have got to look at those in national conversations around policy as it relates to this issue, and you have to start using the advances of one to point out the deficiencies of another. Why, why, in what world is New York City and New York State not at the vanguard of this issue? You let the West Coast play you like that? You know. So that's kind of part of what I'm doing. And I would say for those of you here in Los Angeles and in broader California, push harder. It's what we, young parents call it, positive reinforcement. Seriously, acknowledge the celebration of, and, and, and you know, the, the only thing I'll say to closure is, is that the thing about politics is a negotiation. You, we're negotiating our vote on behalf of you, your job security. What we have got to stop doing, which we're getting better, but we still got a long ways to go, is negotiating on the back end. Right? Any, anybody in business, and certainly any lawyer will tell you, uh, the time to negotiate the terms of your conditioning is not after the paperwork is okay? That's, that's, that's not. We have got to start negotiating, and, and I say this in the book, it's a great place to close this and, and, and go on to pictures and signing. One of the things Douglas has taught me, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Black folks, we have got to be more demanding. Not asking, not permissive, not waiting, not even on this one negotiating. We've got to be more demanding. Thank you. Address 
of mass incarceration and keeping it in the face of somebody like Gavin Newsom who has such control over yeah. mass incarceration in the lives of so many uh, people such as myself. Okay, thank you for that question, buddy. So you probably know I used to practice criminal defense work. That's, that was my bread and butter for many years. So if we want to talk about mass incarceration, again, y'all, I approach these issues very differently than most public intellectual or activist types you will see. I don't come at these issues from emotion, and I don't come at them from a place of feel good. I don't even really care about doing the quote right thing. I have to dissect the issue to get to the nucleus of why it's an issue to begin with. Black mass incarceration, it is predominantly blacks that are being mass incarcerated. Of course, it's anti-blackness, but we have got to de-incentivize the prison complex system on its face. As long as goods and services are literally coming through the door of multi-million, sometimes billion dollar corporations known as prisons, there's literally products and goods and services coming out of these institutions. So there is a literal incentive for judges on a bench to not only wrongfully convict, that's one problem, but then overly sentence, that's another problem. So you've got a bifurcated double incentive to fuel a financial industry. So until there's you know, more statutory regulation, more restrictions, more regulations, more prohibitions that say, we're actually not going to allow for a profit machine to exist inside of a penitentiary that supposedly is designed for rehabilitation, round and round we go. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Thanks for listening to Malik's Bookshelf, where topics on the shelf are books, culture, and community. Be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. Check out my Instagram at Malik Books. See you next time.